throughout the Bible, we see that people who love God, people who are trusting God and his Messiah, Jesus, people who are filled with the Spirit, suffer times when they feel distress in their hearts. It's throughout the Bible. Godly people suffer distress, sadness, grief in in their hearts. And what I want us to think about this morning, because the passage that we're going to be studying makes us think about it, is what do you do at those times when your heart is full of distress or grief or sadness? What do you do? Like, for example, let's say that you found out this week that one of your closest friends here has lost their job and has to move back to their home country. What do you do when you're filled with grief and distress about that? Or if you were applying for a job, thinking you were going to get it, looked very promising, and then you found out this week that you didn't get it, they hired somebody else, and you're heartbroken, you're so disappointed. What do you do at those times? Or what do you do if you go to the doctor and he sits down and looks at you and says, this may be something serious. We need to run some more tests. And you're driving home with grief and sorrow and distress. What do you do at those times? That's what I want us to think about this morning. I mean, honestly, what do you do? Some people just pretend like everything's fine and try to keep on going with business as usual, right? Very common to do. Other people might call up a friend to complain, to vent, just to pour out their soul bitterly. Others, maybe the other side of the spectrum, might isolate themselves. It's not going to talk to anybody. Just drown myself in self-pity, possibly. Others might go to the kitchen to find something to eat. It's always comforting, right? Or maybe binge watch some series on Netflix or something like that, right? The list goes on and on. So, but the question I want to ask you is, what do you do? Honestly, at those times when you face distress. And what we're going to see in God's word this morning is what God does for Jacob when he's facing a time of distress. And this is so encouraging because this isn't just what God does for Jacob. This is what, and we're going to see this, what God promises to do for everyone who's trusting him and trusting his Savior who he sent, Jesus. What does God promise to do for us when we are facing times of distress? So let's turn to Genesis chapter 34. We're going through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Actually, right now it's been the lives of Isaac and Jacob. And Genesis 34. Now here's some background to Genesis 34. You've got to get this to see what's going on. Remember, Jacob had lied, directly lied to his father, and stolen the family blessing from his twin brother, Esau. And so Esau wanted to kill him. And Jacob fled and went north to try to find a wife and ended up being north, a couple hundred kilometers north for over 20 years, working for his father-in-law, Laban. But now it's time for Jacob to move back home. 
And last week, Pastor Ben showed us that while Jacob is moving back home, he hears that Esau, his twin brother, last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. Now Esau is moving north with 400 men. Bum, 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 right? And so Jacob, understandably, is very fearful, but God meets Jacob, strengthens his faith, changes Esau's heart. So when Esau sees Jacob, Esau runs towards Jacob, kisses him, and they are reconciled together. It's an amazing story. So Pastor Ben showed us that last week. So Esau just got his 400 men. They head back south. It takes a little longer for Jacob to move him and all of his flocks. So, so they're moving slowly. They, they settle for a time with the Hivites. But while they are living there amongst the Hivites, something horrifying happens. So what happens? while they were living with the Hivites, verses 1 through 4. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, saw Dinah, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. What's going on here? Jacob's daughter, Dinah, innocently goes to visit some women friends. But Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, sees her, grabs her, and sexually assaults her. It's horrifying. And then he wants to marry her after assaulting her. So he tells his father, get her for me, which means that his father, Hamor, needs to go to Jacob and Jacob's sons to ask their permission. So how do Jacob and his sons respond? Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So now he's going to ask permission. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. So Shechem's father, Hamor, comes to to Jacob. And at the same time, Jacob's sons come. They heard about what Shechem did. So they come and arrive on the scene. And Hamor, Shechem's father, asks Jacob, if his son can marry Dinah. He tells Jacob, this is going to be good. The land will be open to you. You can marry our daughters. We'll give you our daughters to marry. We'll trade together. We'll prosper. This is going to be a good thing. Then Shechem speaks up, asks Jacob and his son's permission to marry Dinah, verse 11. Shechem said also to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. 
Now, in those days, a man would give a bride price to the woman's father. And Shechem so much wants to marry Dinah that he says, ask any bride price you want. It's worth anything. I'll give it. So Jacob's sons decide to take advantage of Shechem, and they deceive him. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. A little bit of background about circumcision. You know, circumcision is where the, the man's foreskin is removed. And God told Abraham, we saw that previously back in chapter 17 of Genesis, to have all the men in his household circumcised as a picture of salvation. Because it pictures what God does when he cuts the, the sin that has been surrounding our hearts and he, he cuts that off figuratively and we're free. He gives us faith. He gives us new hearts. He gives us repentance. That's what he does for both men and women. That's what circumcision is to picture. That's the intention of it. But Jacob's sons here are destroying the meaning of circumcision. Do you see that? It's not a way here to picture salvation. Here's just a way for these men to be able to marry their women, and especially for Shechem to be able to marry Dinah. There's no sense that the Hivite men are becoming believers in the true God. This is just something that they want to do in order to have marital rights. And remember that Jacob and his, or this, Jacob's sons are deceiving Hamor and Shechem and the Hivites with what they had just said. So how do Hamor and his son respond? You've all got to get circumcised, so how do they respond? Verse 18, start there. Their words, Jacob's son's words, pleased Hamor and Hamor's son, Shechem. And the young man, Shechem, did not delay to do, this, do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son, Shechem, came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men, Jacob, Jacob's sons, are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And I notice this next line. They're trying to deceive Jacob and his sons as well. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So all the Hivite men are circumcised. And what do Jacob's sons do next? Verse 25. On the third day, when they, the Hivite men who'd been circumcised, when they were sore, 
Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. So being circumcised left the Hivite men sore, unable to fight. Two brothers of Dinah, Levi and Simeon, came and killed all the men. Keep reading in verse 26. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city. The sons of Jacob, did I read that right? The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Now one question is, was it right for Simeon and Levi to do what they did? The answer is no, it was not right. Shechem was horribly wrong to sexually assault Dinah. We've seen that in the passage, crystal clear. But it was just Shechem who should have been punished, not all the men. Okay? And we can see that it was wrong, what Levi and Simeon did, by what Jacob says at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49. At this point, in time, Jacob is giving parting words to his sons before he dies. And he gives blessing to many of them. But look at what he says to Levi and Simeon. This is Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. It's going to be up here on the screen. Genesis 49, 5 through 7. Here's what Jacob speaks as parting words to Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So if you're wondering if what Simeon and Levi did was wrong, it was wrong. Okay? Clearly wrong. But not only were they wrong in what they did to the Hivite men, they'd also caused a terrible problem for Jacob and the rest of the household. So what problem have Simeon and Levi created? Verses 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, Jacob's household, in comparison to all of the Canaanites and Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they, Simeon and Levi, said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Okay, Simeon and Levi are right that Shechem should have been punished, okay? but it was completely unjust for them to kill all the men of the Hivites. Not only that, now they've created a huge problem for Jacob and his family. Now all the surrounding people, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, are infuriated with them and are moving towards attacking them. Now, to see how serious this is, look at this map. Canaanites and Perizzites. Okay, so Shechem, it's a little hard to see that, I apologize, but 
Shechem is one of those little cities in there. Anyway, so here's Perizzites mentioned here. Here's Canaanites mentioned here. Shechem is, I think, right there. Yeah, that's not very clear. My apologies. But Perizzites and Canaanites, those are just really words describing all of these seven nations of Canaan. And so all the, all the men in Shechem were killed, and as word of that got out to all the surrounding peoples, they became more and more and more angry. They are becoming infuriated. And so they're obviously going to now just to stamp out Jacob and his family. And Jacob's family is small. So if the Canaanites, Perizzites, if all of those nations come and attack Jacob's family, Jacob's family will be annihilated. He'll be destroyed, just snuffed out. There's no question what will happen if they attack. So this is a huge problem for Jacob and his family. But if, you, if you've been tracking with what we've seen through Genesis so far, this is also a huge problem for God's promise of salvation. Are you tracking with that? Let me remind you why. Remember, back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve did what we've all done. They fell for the serpent, for Satan's temptation, decided they're going to turn their backs on God. They're going to decide on their own how they want to live. That's what the Bible calls sin. And because of that, the whole world was plunged under God's curse. That's Genesis 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Also in Genesis 3, God makes an astonishing promise that through one of Eve's offspring, one of Eve's offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. And that's a prophecy of Jesus, who thousands of years in the future would be sent by God. Jesus was fully God, became fully man, died on the cross, paid for the sins of everyone who would put their trust in him. And by paying for their sins, he destroyed Satan's work. He crushed the serpent's head. That's a promise back in Genesis chapter 3. But then in Genesis 12, God gets more specific. Instead of just one of Eve's offspring, which could be anybody... It's narrowed down to one of Abraham's offspring. And God promises that one of Abraham's offspring will save people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, moving people from being in God's curse to being in God's blessing. That's also a prophecy of Jesus. So it's been narrowed from one of Eve's offspring to one of Abraham's offspring. And then a few chapters later, it gets even more narrowed to one of Jacob's offspring. What if Jacob's offspring is going to be the one who will be the serpent crusher, who will die on the cross to pay for sins, who will save men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe, from from every ethnic group, bringing them from being under God's curse to being in God's blessing, forgiven by God, loved by God, known by God, fellowshipping with God. But if that Messiah, that Savior, is going to be from the line of Jacob, then what happens if Jacob's household is annihilated? That stops God's promise of salvation. That destroys God's promise of salvation. God's promise of salvation would not take place. And so can you feel what is at stake here in the passage? So what does God do? Chapter 35, verses 1 through 7. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God tells Jacob, leave Shechem, travel down to Bethel. But look at what Jacob does before they leave. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. 
and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now, why does Jacob's household have foreign gods among them? It must be that the people living around them had influenced them, and idolatry had snuck into their hearts, had seeped into their lives, had become part of of who they were, and they were now worshiping, many of them, false gods. Now, don't be so shocked We don't necessarily smuggle in little statues into our homes, but we have other things that we can start to idolize, right? So we're not immune to this. This is what's happening here. And my sense is that Jacob knows we're in trouble here. Everybody's getting angry at us. We need all of God's help we can get. Listen, family, repent. Turn from your idols. Turn from your sins. We need to call upon God here, and that's what's going on. And so they bring their household idols. It seems also that somehow what they were wearing was connected with idolatry and somehow rings were connected with the idolatry. And so Jacob takes that and he puts the foreign gods and rings under a tree. So now all of us are wondering at this point, what are the Canaanites and the Perizzites going to do? Their rage is growing. Their anger is building. Little Jacob and his household here, all the nations around are getting angrier and angrier. What's going to happen? Verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So all of a sudden, this terror from God falls upon the Canaanites and the Perizzites, even though, though they're furious at Jacob's family and vastly outnumber Jacob's family and could easily annihilate Jacob's family, they become terrified for some reason. Well, we know why, because God caused them to become terrified at the thought of attacking them, and so they do nothing. They just let Jacob and his household move. So Jacob and his family are protected by God. Verse 6. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So another altar is being built. We've talked before about how altars are connected with animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice took place all through the Old Testament before Jesus came because it pictured what Jesus would do when he came. You would lay your hand on an animal that had no blemish, picturing, symbolizing the transfer of your guilt to that animal, and then that animal would be killed. Picturing that that animal is being punished in your place. And that's what Jesus did on the cross, right? When you put your trust in Jesus, this is amazing. All of your guilt, past, present, and future, was put upon Jesus then 2,000 years ago, and Jesus was punished in your place. That's what's being pictured here. So again, all this mercy and blessing from God isn't because Jacob deserved it, because he earned it in some way. It's because of God's mercy, which would be purchased for him through what Jesus would do on the cross when he comes as the Messiah in the future. So there's the passage. Now, 
What does this mean for us, church? We come, we're reading Genesis 34, the first seven verses of 35. We're saying, God, you had Moses write this, not just for Israel to read, but for us today to read. So what are you saying to us through this? I mean, notice, first of all, that nothing can stop God's promises. We've seen that all through the book of Genesis so far. God has promised that the Messiah would be born through the line of Jacob. But the Canaanites and the Perizzites could destroy the line of Jacob. So God stops them. And so this continues the theme we've seen week after week after week, that nothing can stop God's promises, that the book of Genesis shows us God repeating his promise of salvation and securing his promise of salvation again and again and again. So that's one takeaway. If you this morning are doubting any of God's promises to you, understand that God is the faithful God. He has never broken a promise to his people, ever, ever. He's not going to break the promise to you now. Every promise he has made to you in his word, he will fulfill. We see it here. You will see it in your life. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. That's one takeaway. But, but I especially want to focus on, on a second takeaway. It's what Jacob said back in verse 3 about God. Did you catch that? Let's read it again. Verse 3. He's speaking to his family. Jacob says, then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Now we've seen in previous chapters, Jacob describing God as the God who has been with him wherever he has gone. That's been repeated before. That's a beautiful truth. But because we've seen that before, I want to focus on the other thing that Jacob just said which we haven't seen before, that God answers him in the day of his distress. Here God is saying, excuse me, here Jacob is saying, God, every time I've had a day of distress, you've answered me. Every time. So think about the days of distress that Jacob has had. Think about the distress of having your twin brother want to kill you. That would cause some distress. Think of the distress of working for dishonest, unscrupulous Laban. Remember that story? Laban kept changing his wages, and, and Jacob's share of the flock was getting smaller and smaller. Think of the distress that would cause. Think of the distress of hearing that Esau and 400 men are moving north towards you. That would cause some distress. Or of being threatened by all the Canaanites and the Perizzites after your sons have killed everybody in one city, killed all the men in one city. But Jacob says that God has answered me in the day of my distress. And that's not just true about Jacob. The Bible makes it clear that's true of everyone who trusts God and who trusts God's Messiah, God's Savior, Jesus. Now, let me show you that from some scriptures. I want you to see how this isn't just true for Jacob. This is true for you because you are trusting Jesus Christ. This is amazingly good news. Remember how... Jacob described God, the God who answers me in the day of my distress. Notice that word answers, and notice that word distress. Now look at Psalm 120, verse 1. 
Hey, remember the book of Psalms in the Old Testament was the song book for Israel's worship. So all the people of Israel would be singing and affirming these truths, these, these statements. So Psalm 121 was sung by everyone in Israel, and so they, they all would have come together and sang, In my distress, there's the word distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. There's the word answered. So all of God's people would sing, Whenever I've got distress... I call upon the Lord, and he's always answered me, just like what Jacob said. So it's not just true for Jacob that God answers him in the day of his distress. It's true for all of God's people. God answers us in the day of our distress. Look also at Psalm 118, verse 5. And again, this is a song that all of Israel would have sung. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. So the truth I want us to walk away with this morning is that God always answers us in the day of our distress. Now, there's two different ways God can answer us when we're going through a time of distress. Two different ways he can answer us. And he'll do whichever one will bring us the most joy in him because he is the prize. He'll do whichever one will bring us the most joy in him So it's either going to be good or it's going to be good, all right? But here's the two different ways God can answer us. One way is by taking the problem away. That's what he did here. He put the the fear of God upon the Canaanites and Perizzites so they did not attack. The problem was taken away. That's one way God can work. He can supernaturally heal. He can miraculously provide jobs. He can change our circumstances. He can take the problem away. That's beautiful. But sometimes what's going to bring us the greatest joy in God is not to take the problem away, but to make his presence so real in our hearts that we are filled with peace and filled with joy, even with distress, filled with such peace and such joy that it's like we're lifted above the problem. The problem is still there, but we're, we're, we're like Paul says, we are more than conquerors. We smile at the problem. So those are two different ways God can answer us, but the point is that he will always answer his people in our times of distress. One or the other, he will always, whichever one will bring us the most joy in him. So let's say that you are distressed about some problem, brokenhearted, grieving about some some difficulty. Here's the picture I want you to have. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, above you, it's like there's this big water tank, huge, massive, maybe 5,000-gallon or liter uh, water tank above you. And it's full of God's power, God's peace, God's nearness, God's joy, God's presence. There's this massive water tank above you. That's what's always going on whenever you face distress. So the question is, how do we turn the spigot to to have that flow into our lives at those times where we're facing distress? How How do we turn the spigot? And remember that Jacob said, the God who answers me in the day of my distress. And Psalm 120, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And Psalm 118, 5, out of my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. If someone answers you, what have you done? You've called upon them. 
right? If someone answers you, it's because you've called upon them. So what we need to do is call upon the Lord. We need to pray. We need to seek his face. We need to take time to cry out to God, to to go hard after him. And when we do, whenever we do, the spigot will open and what's in that massive water tank of God's peace and God's presence and God's power and God's joy will be brought into our lives in, in the best way that will bring us the greatest joy in him. He promises that. He always does that. My page got mixed up here. I knew that was wrong. Okay. Um, now, let's get real concrete. Let's say that you, you did hear this week that one of your closest friends lost their job and has to go back to their home country. For those of us living here in Abu Dhabi, that is something that is too real, right? And it's, it's painful. We've all felt that, or if you haven't yet, you will. It's part of a reality here. And this has been a friend that you have loved and cared for. They've loved you in the Lord. You've encouraged each other. You've laughed together. You've wept together. You've gone dune bashing together, right? You've, you know, whatever you've done here together, right? But you've, you've, you've built each other up in the Lord. You're, you're, the Lord has knit your hearts together, and you are grieving, and it's right. And you're feeling distress, and that, that's a good thing. But I remember, as you're feeling that distress, because you're trusting Jesus, there's this water tank above you full of peace and joy and power. And to turn the spigot, you need to, to ask God. You need to pray. That's what you need to do. So think about this. Now, what if you don't ask God and pray? How much of God's comfort and power and peace and presence are you going to experience if instead of praying, what you do is just pretend that everything's fine and go on with business as usual? How much are you going to receive? None. Probably. God may bring some drops just to stir your heart so you start to pray, but you, you get what I'm saying, right? He's merciful. But let me just say none because you're not asking. Or what if you just call up a friend to complain and pour out your soul to your friend? How much are you going to be receiving of what God has to give? None. Or what if you binge watch Netflix, especially if you just binge watch Netflix, right? <laughs> what are you going to receive? Nothing. So is that what you've been experiencing? Because you haven't been asking. But now what if you stop and cry out to God for help? Father, this friend, really, Lord, are you going to take them back to their home country? We've been so close. They've strengthened me in so many ways. I've learned so much about you from them. I think I've been an encouragement to them too. This is so hard. Thank you for them, but oh, Lord, this is hard. Please, Father, Get them a job or fill me up, comfort me, bring me some other friends. But Lord, I'm in distress right now. I need you. And as you cry out to God, as you seek his face, the spigot will be opened and he will answer you in your day of distress. And you will look back and say, God answered. Maybe ring, your phone rings and I just got a job. I thought I had to leave. Or 
Or maybe that isn't what happened, but as you're there before the Lord with the word open, you have one of those times where God just floods your soul with his presence. And so you, you say, I don't need anything besides you. I'm sad, but I have you. Either way, God will answer you in the day of your distress. Now, some of you have never experienced that. One reason might be, if, if you've never owned up to the truth of your sin, we, we've all got sin in this room, no one's exempt from this, but if you've never owned up to the truth of your sin and never seen what Jesus did on the cross and embraced Christ as your Savior and trusted him, then you'll never experience that happening from God because your sin is a barrier between you and God. But see, God sent Jesus because God wants that barrier removed. And if you'll put your trust in Jesus, he will forgive all your sins. And not only that, he will start to change your heart. You'll start to love God more. It's, you might think I'm a totally non-spiritual person. He can change that. You just put your trust in him. He'll forgive your sins. He'll start to change your heart. And he will fully satisfy your heart in his beautiful, glorious presence. And from that point on, then, whenever you are in a day of distress and you call upon the Lord, he will answer you. He will answer you. So some of you have never experienced this because you've never owned up to the truth of your sin and to what Jesus has done. Oh, I plead with you, put your trust in Jesus Christ today. Not just because he'll answer you in your distress. That's, that's a beautiful thing, but there's something far bigger. You'll be forgiven for your sins. You will never be punished by God. You'll have God and his holy son Jesus as your prize forever. That's the real big win. And he will answer you every time you face distress. Others of you are trusting Jesus. You have been forgiven for your sins, but for some reason, you haven't asked God for his help when you have faced times of distress. You've just tried to pretend like everything's fine and go on with business as usual, or you just complain to your friends, or you go to the kitchen to find something to eat, or all the different things we do, right? And maybe this is the first time that you've really ever considered the fact that when you face a time of distress, God wants you to call upon him because he wants to do something beautiful and special for you in this time of distress. So I hope that this morning you see this truth from the life of Jacob, that God is the God who answers us in our day of distress. You don't ever need to face a day of distress without receiving God's beautiful heart-changing, life-changing answer. But instead of doing those other things, when you face distress, set everything else aside and seek his face. Pour out your soul before him. Tell him the distress you're experiencing. He knows, but it's good for you to tell him all the details of it. Ask him to help you. Ask him to comfort you, ask him to strengthen you, ask him to change the circumstances, ask him to help you. Every time he will. And you'll look back a year from now, 30 years from now, and you'll join Jacob in saying, God is the God who answers me in the day of my distress. That's my call to us. It's my call to me. It's my call to us. Trust Jesus to forgive you for your sins. And every time you face a day of distress, focus on calling upon the name of the Lord 
seeking his face, he will always answer you. He has promised. Let's stand together. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon each one of us right now with exactly what we need to hear from you now. I pray for those who have not yet taken their sin seriously and have not embraced Jesus as their Savior, their treasure, their Lord, their King. And I pray that right now they would turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus. Lord, do that right now, I pray. And as they do, pour out your Spirit upon them. Let the weight of guilt lift off of them. Let your pardoning love fill them. And Lord, from now on, whenever they face a day of distress, as they call upon you, thank you that you will answer them. And Lord, for those of us who have been trusting Christ, who are forgiven, but who, who for whatever reasons haven't been calling upon you when we face our distress, I pray that you would bring about a profound change in our hearts starting today, that we will not be the same the rest of our lives, that every time distress comes, we will seek your face first and foremost, because we know you are the God who answers us in our distress. So God, put that upon us, I pray in Jesus' name.